Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Spokane, Washington. Brought to you by Gordon Physical Therapy. And now, here's your host, Dr. Luke Gordon. Hello, everybody. This is Luke Gordon. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. And today's episode is uh, just me again. And this is part two of a podcast that I put out about a month ago about natural ways to reduce pain and inflammation. So um, this is going to have some good information in and of itself. Basically, uh, I titled the podcast Eight Natural Ways to Reduce Pain and Inflammation. And in that first episode, we covered the first four, which I'll go over real briefly here before we dive into the next four, which is going to be the main body of the um, of the podcast. So uh, that's where we're going with it. Um, kind of wanted to give you the same lead in as last time. And, and the reason this was an important subject to me is, um, and it's how I kind of introduced the topic last time, was that there's just a lot of focus nowadays in medicine on treating individual conditions and individual symptoms versus treating the whole body or the whole person, you know, the holistic approach, if you will, and um, trying to find solutions to benefit the entire system as opposed to just looking at individual systems and trying to treat them with uh, natural medicine or, of course, pharmacological medicine and things like that, which uh, to me is always a last resort. So if you're interested in natural ways to improve your health, obviously that's hopefully why you're listening to the podcast in the first place. Uh, but this should be some good information. And for some of you, it might just be a reminder. And for some of you, it might be brand new, but we'll take it from there and uh, take what you can learn from it. The other thing I mentioned quite a bit last episode was that the thing that a lot of people have in common in terms of um, medical conditions is just the underlying issue of chronic inflammation. So whether you're talking about you know a specific inflammatory disorder like I have, which is rheumatoid arthritis, uh, which is an autoimmune condition, or you've got other, you know, chronic issues, um, different parts of your body, things like diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease. There's a million of these things, it seems like these days, uh, many of which are autoimmune, which is, an, again, kind of a dysfunction of your immune system. Again, the commonality, if you're looking at treating the whole system, is that there's just there's things that are going wrong on a systemic level or a whole body level that if you can improve those things with any luck, they should have a positive uh, impact on all of your systems. So again, as opposed to try to treating one system and seeing one doctor or specialist for each individual issue you have going on, we're looking at treating you as a whole human being. So again, that's the um, that's the, the lead in for the topic and why it's important and just to help you understand it. After the first part of this, which again was the first four of, of the eight, I got some interesting emails back from people because I always email people when I do a podcast. So I, I use my email through uh, Gordon Physical Therapy. So we have a client base there. And this is just one of the things that I do to, to help push out information, you know, in addition to things like blogs and videos and stuff like that. So I always encourage people to email me back and tell me what they think. You know, do you like it? Do you not like it? Sometimes I get a little bit interesting with my emails and, um, you know, I try to have fun with it and things like that. And um, one of the ladies who emailed me back raised a good point. So she was right in the middle of a flare-up, uh, basically like a pinched nerve in her neck. And an interesting thing to keep in mind with um, natural ways to reduce inflammation and pain is that typically this is more of a long game. So it's more of a long-term process. So you're looking to make some positive changes that will affect uh, your entire body in a, you know, in a good way, but it's going to take time typically for the changes to take effect. Now, compare that to if you're in a lot of pain right now as you're listening to this episode and you go take an ibuprofen or or an Aleve or a Tylenol, or even something stronger like an opioid, um, just keep in mind that those pharmaceutical agents typically are going to give you results quickly. 
which sometimes you want that or feel like you need that, and that's totally fine. Whereas when you're looking at ways to improve your health and reduce inflammation naturally, you're not typically going to see the dramatic results, at least not that quickly. So just keep that in mind. Bear that in mind that it's not typically a short-term thing. It's not like, well, hey, Luke, I'm, I'm dying right now. What can, what can I do right now? It's like, well, these are still really good ideas for you to take forward into the future, but just keep that in mind that this definitely is a long-term um, solution and a long-term, you know, long-term changes that hopefully you can make to your to your lifestyle. So again, just keep that in mind as we go through some of these here, and um, with any luck, one or two or three of them will help you out. So um, again, uh, let's just do a quick recap of last week too. And again, if you, if you already listened to that episode, sorry for the redundancy, but um, just before we get into the four additional ways today, let's just go over the last four from the previous episode. So the first one was we talked about food and essentially we're talking about food um, in terms of uh consuming less sugar and carbohydrates and increasing the the number of high quality fats and proteins. Um, so, and I kind of alluded to one of the things we're going to talk about today, which is nutrient density. So food, um, again, and this is, uh, leads into things like the paleo diet or right now the real popular diet is the keto diet, ketogenic diet, which is really high fat and basically no carbs or sugar. And a lot of people are using diets nowadays, of course, to lose weight, which is, you know, typically what you think of with diet. But this again is more along the lines of decreasing your inflammation and for many people, just lowering the level of sugar and carbs is going to have a positive impact on their inflammation. So that was the first thing. The second one we talked about, again, was related to food, but it was more specific to eliminating certain foods that uh, specifically bother you. So foods that trigger uh, negative symptoms like fatigue or headaches or brain fog and or foods that might you just might be sensitive to. And we kind of briefly discussed, you know, there's a difference between a food allergy and a food sensitivity and how oftentimes it's really difficult to determine what foods you're sensitive to um, until you try uh, a phase of time where you eliminate that food. So that, again, is um, an interesting topic because for most of us, there probably are one, two, or three foods or substances that just really bother us. And like I said, there's not definitive testing typically when it comes to food sensitivities. There are some interesting tests that might help you or kind of get you in the right direction. Um, but oftentimes, I think from my perspective, the better route, if you want to know if a food is bothering you, is just to eliminate it specifically over a length of time and see how you do in regards to whatever you're trying to improve. Uh, and again, it could be a headache. It could be the brain fog. It could be joint pain. It could be any number of things. And then I also mentioned just some common ones you might think of. For me personally, the first thing that I eliminated from my diet that I was just kind of testing out six years ago was uh, gluten. And for me, that had a very positive impact. It took about five weeks for me to notice anything, which actually is fairly quick for a lot of people. With gluten, usually you have to eliminate it for at least two or three months to let your immune system really calm down if it is sensitive to it. So that was a good one for me. Uh, the next one that I eliminated personally was dairy, another positive uh, result. Um, you can keep in mind other types of grains. For some people, it's more along the lines of eggs, certain nuts, things like that. And then I also threw in, don't hate me, uh, but I threw in alcohol because for a lot of people, alcohol just doesn't do them any favors. So all good things to think about when you're looking at eliminating specific foods or substances that might just bother your immune system and keep that level of inflammation active. So that was number two. Number three was uh, overall just decreasing your toxic load and your exposure to toxic chemicals. Um, an obvious one there or an easy one to point to would be decreasing your exposure to things like pesticides. And that again does kind of go back to food, which seems like we talk a lot about food on this episode. But um, 
talked about briefly like the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, which basically if you Google either one of those, um, if you're looking to reduce the level of pesticides that are on your food, that's a really good place to start. So if you say, well, hey, which are the foods that I should avoid if they're grown conventionally that you know I might want to uh, spend the extra money to get organically, that would be the Dirty Dozen. So that um, off the top of my head, things like apples are usually on there, grapes, strawberries. And those are just the foods that if you took them out of the store and they're conventionally grown, you know, with chemical um, pesticides and fertilizers, they're the ones that have the most residual residue, residual residue, that's a, that's a good term, but they have the most residue back on them. So you're actually ingesting that pesticide. Um, so a good place to start there, dirty dozen, clean 15. Um, and then I did mention other chemicals around the house, um, depending on how deep you want to get into that. Of course, uh, Google can be a rabbit hole sometimes, but there's a lot of different chemicals uh, between your cleaning detergents and uh, things like makeups or shampoos, conditioners, anything along those lines are worth looking into just overall decreasing your toxic load. And then one other favorite one, of course, is Roundup and any of those chemical weed killers, um, especially the ones with glyphosate. Some of the research they're doing right now on glyphosate is pretty uh, pretty creepy, really, in terms of its ability to cause autoimmune disease. Um, the big one you'll hear about, like in the news and things like that, is it's uh, linked to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so, again, worth looking into some of those things um, just to overall have a positive effect on your immune system and, and decrease your inflammation. So that was number three, decreasing your toxic load. Number four, we talked about um, probiotics, which is a really interesting one, and I think it's it's kind of Pandora's box when you look at probiotics. There's so many things that we're learning about the, you know, the benefits of bacteria and certain types of bacteria in our guts. And it's really something that I don't think we'll truly understand. But in general, um, for most people, uh, introducing probiotics either as a supplement, supplement or as food into their uh, diet typically has a positive effect on their gut. And typically that has a positive effect on your immune system. So we went into some detail about that in the previous episode. So refer back to that if you want to know more about probiotics. Okay, so that is our recap. Let's get into the topic of today then now that we're like 10 minutes in. Um, and we will talk about the, the next four. So since we're talking so much about food, we're going to start off number five. Number five that I have on my list for ways to decrease pain and inflammation naturally is nutrient density. So... If you go back to the things we just talked about kind of in the summary, you know, we talk about food and decreasing your carbs and increasing protein and fat, higher quality, um, call those macros, essentially. They're not nutrients. They're just, it's just a form of calorie. So we talked about that. We also talked about decreasing um, food triggers and stuff. Uh, the next step you could take, or you could take this as the first step, however you want to arrange your life and uh, how you make progress, is you're looking at the density of uh, the nutrition in your food. So again, just knowing the, the relative amounts of carbs, fat, and protein in your food doesn't necessarily give you uh, a good idea of the actual nutrition. And so when I think of nutrition, I think of like vitamins, nutrients, things like that. So all of those good things that hopefully your food is pulling from the soil and then it's putting into the food and then you're ingesting into your body. So think of all of, uh, you know, essential nutrients and vitamins that you can get from your food. Um, you know, things like vitamin C and, um, all sorts of other types of nutrients. Um, I'm not going to try to name too many off the top of my head because it's not really my forte, but actually if you, if you go back to, um, I believe it was episode three when I interviewed, uh, Jenny Stuchel, we talked a lot about soil health and nutrition. And that was basically what you're talking about is the nutrient density. So to oversimplify it, basically to have good nutrient density in your food, you have to have good nutrition in the soil, 
which makes sense because that's where the food is getting its nutrition. Um, so obviously there are certain foods you want to eat that have more nutrition in them in general. So things like vegetables are an obvious example, um, certain fruits and things like that. So anything that grows in the ground. Um, so it becomes important for you in terms of nutrient density to first of all, eat foods that have good nutrition in general, but then also to pay attention to where your food is grown and how it's grown. Because even if you took a really, let's say a high quality farm and, you know, they're farming organically. So it makes sense. You're not exposing yourself to as many pesticides and chemical fertilizers and things like that. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a lot of nutrition in the soil for the food to pull. And the tricky part there is that if you just look at the food, you have no way of knowing. So depending on how you approach this topic of nutrient density, um, you just basically have to get to know who's growing your food a little bit, which this time of year in Spokane, it's kind of the end of um, farmer's market season, but you can kind of get to know them. And I think this is something that's going to get more popular in the next, you know, five, 10 years as people start to like build up the soil. So they'll build it up with certain types of natural fertilizers, say like a steer manure, or there's different compounds nowadays that some of the local farmers will use. I forget what they're called, but some of them have like, it's a similar product like diatomaceous earth or ash, something like that, uh, like a volcanic ash, which, so they're trying to reintroduce these substances into their soil that are extremely nutrient dense. So that way, when you grow a good quality, you know, pepper or tomato um, or kale or spinach or whatever you're growing, not only does it look beautiful and taste great, but it's also got a really good amount of nutrition in it. So again, that's a difficult one to determine on your own because you really can't just tell. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of testing out there for foods anyways, but that's just something to keep in mind going forward. Because even if you're doing some of the things that, that I've been talking about so far, um, really, you, I think we can pretty well assume that any soil that's been farmed for the last 50 to 100 years, a lot of that nutrition has just been sucked right out of it into the food and then not replaced. Um, especially when you look at, you know, different crops. This is kind of like the history of crop rotation. You know, you, you plant one crop here um, and it pulls out certain nutrients and then you rotate it with a different crop and that crop will replace the nutrients. So that's one way to approach this. And then, you know, other ways to approach it are uh, building it, building the soil with other types of practices and things like that. So again, I'm no expert on it, but it is something to, to consider that when you eat, uh, really you should be eating for nutrition which kind of contradicts that first thing I talked about with, you know, eating um, fats and proteins versus carbs. I think that is important. I think it's really important actually. But at the end of the day, uh, the way you eat really shouldn't be so much about weight control as it should be about nutrition and getting the the building blocks and um, the essential, you know, elements and nutrients. Uh, uh, nutrients and things like that, that you need to live a healthy life, which it does go back to eating fewer carbs and things like that, because typically the, especially the simple carbs have just about no nutrition at all. Look at like a bread or, or a typical potato or something like that. There's just not much in there that's actually helping your body, um, be strong and, and in terms of the nutrients that you're going to pull and the vitamins and, um, things like that. Again, not the expert on that, but I think it's important. And we do look at that, especially with our local farmers. And, you know, I think it, for, for my personal journey and my wife and I and the family, it's, it's more right in the, in the learning process right now. But just, um, just the fact that it's important to us, I think is going to hopefully make it more readily available down, down the line. Um, with that all in mind too, kind of an interesting side note on nutrient density is, um, is taking supplements. So supplements for, you know, like a multivitamin, or of course you have probiotic supplements and you have all, all sorts of things in between like calcium, magnesium, and, um, just about anything you can think of that you might be deficient in. So I think that's an important topic to bring up just to say that if you just kind of 
as a blanket statement, kind of assume that the most of the food that we're getting, even if it is organic, locally grown, probably doesn't have as much nutrition in it as it should. Um, it would make sense to me that it's probably a good idea to do supplementation on some level. Now, again, I'm no expert on how many multivitamins you should take, and there's about 500 options, you know, at Super Supplements or at Amazon or things like that. But I think it's important that you look into it. And if you're working with, you know, a natural physician or something like that, I think it's a good conversation to have in terms of just how much you should be consuming or um, which ones are most important for you. Personally, when I look at supplements, I look at I do like a multivitamin and then I do probiotics, which I try to eat a lot of probiotic foods too. Um, my wife ferments like pickles and just got a sauerkraut recently that she actually made, which was awesome. Usually we just get the organic sauerkraut at Costco and make sure it's alive. Um, so uh, probiotics is another one that we look into. And then there's all sorts of supplements that you can take that should have a positive effect on inflammation. So you look at things like, um, I think I mentioned this last time too, but uh, you look at things like turmeric and curcumin and other things like bromelain, boswellia. There's a handful of ones that you can do to decrease inflammation as well. So again, uh, Depending on your feelings on supplements, I think it's good to look into. Again, you're looking at higher quality things that potentially are going to give you some of those vitamins and nutrients that you might not be getting from your food. Okay, so that is number five, uh, looking at nutrient density. Number six, this is a favorite one of mine and one that I hope to improve uh, personally. And I just I just put on my little sheet here as outdoor time. So being outdoors and exposing yourself to natural light and uh, vitamin D, I think that's extremely important. I think if you ask me to prove that, I don't, I don't know if I could point to any specific studies about why it's important to be outside, but I think this is one of those situations where a little common sense goes a long way. And you look at the average person, myself included, we spend a lot of time indoors uh, nowadays uh, with very little exposure to natural light and a lot of artificial light too, which really doesn't affect your body's regulatory systems the same way that natural light does. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit just in terms of what I know and what I think I know, but I'm pretty confident I can tell you that just being outdoors more often and exposing yourself to natural elements like light is good for you and obviously fresh air and things like that. One of the more obvious ones, more obvious reasons why you should spend more time outdoors is vitamin D. And uh, vitamin D, of course, is just, uh, it's produced in your skin when your skin is exposed to uh, sunlight. And of course, you can take a pill for vitamin D and that's, that's all good and well. And if you have low vitamin D levels, which pretty much everyone in the Pacific Northwest has low vitamin D, um, depending on who you talk to, it's 90% of people, 95% of people. If you're ever curious, uh, I would say wait until about February or March and ask your doctor just to um, run your vitamin D levels the next time you have like a blood draw. Um, the first time I did it and I wasn't doing any supplements, I was below like the lowest level for vitamin D. And um, I believe I was at a level of 19. I don't know what 19 what, but that's the, that's the measurement they were taking. And uh, you should be in the range of 30 to 70. Depending on how you talk to, the range will vary a little bit, 30 to 50 sometimes. Uh, if, you, if you get into more of the natural physicians like online, like a favorite one of ours, Dr. Mercola, uh, he actually, and a lot of other research in the, the autoimmune communities say you actually want to be higher. Like uh, for people like me who have autoimmune conditions, you actually want to be 50, 60, 70. Like you want to be on the high end of that range. Whereas again, depending on which lab you go to and which doctor you see, the, the normal range might be like 30 to 50 or something like that. So um, again, you can take a vitamin D supplement, which makes a lot of sense if you're deficient, but you know, the, the easiest way and the most natural way to get it, of course, is just healthy exposure to sunlight. And, uh, you know, here in Spokane, 
you kind of have to get it when you can, <laughs> which, uh, as I'm recording this, we're, we're in September. So, uh, things are changing rapidly. So I'm kind of hoping that I stored up a bunch of it in the summer. Um, and if you know a little bit about vitamins, you have vitamins that are fat soluble and you have vitamins that are water soluble and vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin, which essentially for this purpose just means that your body can store excess amounts of vitamin D in its tissue. Uh, whereas with a water soluble vitamin, like say vitamin C, if you ingest it today, either with a vitamin or an orange or whatever, um, it just passes through your body and then it, the excess is just, um, you just urinate it out, you know, into the toilet. So, so vitamin D is an interesting one. Again, you can get lots of it in the summer and, and kind of stockpile it. A lot of, I think a lot of people just take like a, a certain amount throughout the year, which is kind of what I do. I, um, I don't take much at all in the summer. And then once fall and winter hit, I, I do about 5,000 IUs a day. Again, this isn't specific advice for you, but that's just what I do. And then I have my vitamin D level checked a few times a year. So that again, uh, depending on who you talk to, is extremely important for your body's regulatory systems. There, of course, are other vitamins that are important. And maybe this is just the fad diet or a vitamin for for this year or this um, you know decade or whatever. And there are other things that interact with vitamin D, like vitamin K and things like that. Which again, I'm not an, I'm not an expert in that, but I do think that there's a lot of research that shows that your vitamin D levels can have a significant impact on your health and on your sense of well being and things like depression and anxiety. And I think again, the natural way to get that is to be outside more. The other argument that I would make is that I just can't imagine that vitamin D taking in a pill is the same thing like the same exact quality or structure or whatever as vitamin E that you've naturally produced in your own skin with exposure to sun. Now, again, I have no idea if they can ever prove that, but again, um, following simple advice and intuition, it just, it just makes sense to me that way. The other thing that I will say personally is that I love the feel of sun on my skin. Um, I don't like to burn or anything like that. And I'm not laying out in the backyard, you know, for an hour trying to work on my tan, but just a natural amount of sun exposure on my skin, you know, working around the yard or hiking or, whatever you're doing, just something about it just feels good. So, and I think there's a reason for that, especially since it's warm, but, <laughs> uh, so, so again, uh, commonsensically outdoor time. The other thing I had written down here was that, uh, artificial light, which I'm sitting in a building right now. I'm actually sitting in our, our new yoga studio because it's quiet, but we have these lovely fluorescent lights right above me, like five feet from my head. Um, and I should turn the light off, but <laughs> I wanted to see what I had written down, but, um, the, the artificial light just really isn't, it's not natural light. So there's a big difference between the artificial lights, whether it's the, the lights that I'm underneath right now, the fluorescence, or it's the LED lights, which are quickly replacing fluorescence um, just about everywhere you go. But again, those wavelengths that they're emitting are just not normal sources of light. And uh, it's not the same diversity of light that would be on the wavelength out in natural light. And the other thing to consider with artificial light is that, you know, your body is anticipating interacting with light during the daylight. And one of the biggest drawbacks, I think, to artificial light, not only overhead lights, uh, you know, task lighting, but the lighting on your computer and your phone is that when the sun goes down, your body and your rhythm, your circadian rhythm should be experiencing less light. And that's part of what regulates your rhythm. And we're going to get to this later. That's part of what helps you sleep at night too. So for those of us who are working, you know, either real early in the morning or late at night, or you're just in your house at night with all this artificial light on, it's actually having a negative impact on your body's circadian rhythm. And again, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, kind of save that for last, but keep that in mind. I think natural light really is uh, beneficial. If you did a quick Google search too, this is kind of a big deal um, nowadays with 
I think kind of unprecedented uh, rates of depression and anxiety. There's this there's this lovely thing called seasonal affective disorder, and um, again, especially up here in the Northwest where we have some dark winter months, uh, this is a pretty common term. And basically, what you get is that a lot of people just get really depressed in the darker months, and Again, researching online, I did a little like article on this for a blog uh, years ago. And, you know, so they come up with all these things that you could do to have a positive impact on seasonal affective disorder, which again is just being seasonally kind of down and out. And uh, one of them is they have like a light box. So you can have, so, you know, picture yourself working in a cubicle, which hopefully you don't work in a cubicle, but if you do, you may have to picture yourself. You might just look around and just the limited amounts of light. So these people just have like these little light boxes that help them out. And again, that stuff tends to help people. And so if you want to take it a step further, it might help just to get outside more. So if you are working in an office, you know, maybe it's good for you to get out before work, go for a walk, uh, lunch break, go for a walk, somehow regulate your, or, you know, get some control of your schedule so that you can have more exposure just to natural light. I think that's what your, your body and your brain really, really do well with. Kind of talk about screen time. We'll talk about that later. Again, the artificial light that you get from your cell phone and your TV and your overhead lighting at home can have a, a pretty negative impact, again, on your body's ability to control its rhythm. And then a couple other things I wanted to mention too is that in terms of outdoor time, I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan of grounding as well. So grounding is basically um, at some point touching your skin to the earth. Depending on who you talk to, it's a purely a purely electrical phenomenon where, you know, the average person like myself is wearing a rubber soled shoe all day. You go into your house and take your shoes off, but you're on a linoleum floor or a hardwood floor. None of these surfaces are grounded. Uh, so that means that you're not ever like balancing out your electrical energy to the earth. So it's an interesting one. So you could look at it just purely from an electrical standpoint and say, well, if you go outside and just stick your hand in the wet grass, you will instantly be grounded and any excess um, electricity that you're carrying around. Think of like static electricity or, you know, like negative ions, they will be grounded back to the earth, um, essentially instantly. Um, so that's kind of the scientific route for it. And people, again, you can Google all these things and, um, some people really believe in it. And the other people have more of a holistic or not holistic, but more of a spiritual sense of grounding in your chakras and things like that. Again, I, I haven't gotten too deep into it, but I do like, uh, you know, if you're going to have some time outdoors, um, get your feet and your hands in the dirt, whether you're working on your gardening or just walking barefoot a little bit in the grass. I think there's some benefits to that too, that we don't always fully understand, but, um, to me, it just, it makes sense and it feels good. So keep that in mind, that idea of grounding. Last thing I want to mention with outdoor time is that we live in a day and age where people are really crazy when it comes to sunscreen. And you may call me crazy because I don't really care for sunscreen, but sunscreen is a really interesting one because obviously when you're going outside and you're going to spend several hours in the sun, like at the lake, obviously you're not trying to burn because burning is is bad for you. But what I would argue is worse for you is not having enough natural exposure to sunlight and not having the vitamin D production, which is going to be blocked by sunscreen. The other interesting thing with sunscreen is that if you look at any conventional or typical sunscreen, like a copper tone, is that typically they have at least one or two known uh, ingredients that are known carcinogens. So you're taking these ingredients, I forget what they call off the top of my head, something like parabens or something like that. And you're rubbing them into your skin and you're baking them in with the sun. And again, these are these are ingredients and chemicals that are have been proven in various studies to contribute to to cancer. So again, when you're looking at your outdoor time, depending on who you are and your skin color and all that, consider either not using as much sunscreen and just using things like clothing or hats 
or just being selective about how often you're in the sun, like for prolonged periods or other things, you know, like they have swim shirts nowadays or longer sleeve shirts, things like that. But again, to me, as long as you're not burning, I think spending as much time in the sun as you can is beneficial and it just feels good. Um, and again, the only thing I would specifically avoid is burning and obviously anything else that makes you uncomfortable, like having a lot of sunlight in your face isn't always a pleasant thing. So that goes back into outdoor time. I think again, um, just from a purely basic approach, I think there's a lot of benefits to spending more time outdoors. And it's just something that most of us could probably prioritize a little better and that, um, that I personally am looking to improve in the coming uh, weeks and months, try to keep myself positive throughout the winter. So that was number six. Number seven, you might expect this one from a physical therapist like myself. Uh, number seven is exercise. And this may sound kind of like a no brainer, but I feel like it's one of those ones where I'd be remiss to not mention it because it's so obvious, just the potential benefits, health benefits of exercise. And believe it or not, I don't do that great in this area. I don't exercise, in my opinion, nearly as much as I should. And I think there's, you know, there's a difference between being active and spending time with your family and kids and, you know, going hiking and swimming on the weekends, which is great. And then, you know, then there's like physical exercise where you're really working hard. And in my line of work as a physical therapist, I have some opportunity to exercise uh, when I'm out in the gym with patients and things like that. But for most of us, they're just really, you really have to go out of your way nowadays to exercise. So especially if you work, you know, in a, in a sitting position or, you know, like a desk job, it's really not a physical job that, you know, your body was designed to do. So unfortunately, I think a lot of people really have to go out of the way to exercise, but I think it's good that they do, especially if they work um, in, a, in a sedentary position like that. So if you just look at exercise alone, I think there's um, all sorts of uh, benefits that make sense. You know, you look at things like it's good for your muscles, helps keep you strong. It's definitely good for your bone density, especially if you're doing some level of impact training like jogging or running or, um, you know, some type of jumping or hiking. Um, there's some pretty obvious health benefits to your to your heart and your cardiovascular system. I mean, so I think pretty much everyone on the planet can agree that exercising is beneficial for you to some level or another. Uh, but lately they're actually doing a lot of specific research on exercise and it's um, affiliation with like chronic diseases. And I haven't read up a lot on them yet. Actually, my my folks keep telling me about them, but there's all these different benefits for exercise that they're, that they're publishing and, and they're kind of quantifying nowadays in terms of, you know, X amount of exercise this many times a week for this many minutes and linking it to things like improved brain function, lower rates of things like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. And of course, you could link exercise pretty easily to most of the metabolic disorders like type 2 diabetes and things like that. So I didn't want to just gloss over it, but I think there's a ton of benefits for exercise. And, uh, you know, the advice that I usually give people, especially patients, is that when it comes to exercise, really the thing that you have to look for on a personal level is just something that you enjoy to do because that's what ultimately will make you help you sustain an exercise program. So picking something that you like to do. And I think it's for a lot of people, um, especially kind of adults and older adults, it's, it's really also a good opportunity to build in some social interaction, you know, to your schedule. Unfortunately, I think, you know, living in the United States uh, at times, we, we kind of are an isolated society where everyone's very individual, but I, I, I think, um, group exercise classes are a really good way for people just to get some of that social interaction. So you're not only getting the physical benefits of exercise, but you're also getting those emotional types of, uh, benefits from just being in a group of people and, you know, kind of sharing a bond and some camaraderie. And if you look at like our local area, there's a lot of, I mean, there's just about a club for everything. There's various, there's various 
various dancing groups, you know, there's dancing for certain, there's just dancing period. And there's dancing for like specific diseases like Parkinson's and things like that. And, um, you know, there's boxing groups nowadays, even for older adults and boxing for Parkinson's is a really cool one these days. And then of course there's things like yoga, which we're now launching at the clinic. And there's lots of yoga all over the place, Pilates, So there's groups for just about everything. And then you look at like hiking groups, biking groups, running groups. So there's opportunities pretty much everywhere for you to join a group and, you know, hook up with some like-minded people and enjoy some exercise that you all um, look forward to. So um, don't forget that one when you're looking at just your your long-term ability to to keep your inflammation and your pain level low. Besides just, like I said, all those physical benefits of exercise, there's all of those emotional and social and cognitive benefits as well. And, you know, this might link back in nicely to number six, getting some outdoor time in. If you're, you know, if you're joining a group, that's a running group or a cycling group or whatever type of group, if you can mix it in with an outdoor type group, I think that's really beneficial. So don't, don't skip over that one. That was number seven. That's exercise. Okay, so uh, we're down to the last one here. And before I tell you what it is, I kind of already uh, talked about it a little bit earlier. But to me, this is one that the more I learned about it and the more I read about it, which I've got a book I just read about that I'll share, is potentially one of the most important health tips you could ever have. And again, I'll let you decide for yourself. But uh, And it's often, I, I think, kind of skimmed over as well. And I think it really relates um, to pretty much every aspect of your health and your body. So if you haven't already guessed it, number eight is sleep, that mythical beast that you try to capture at night. Um, so sleep, um, very interesting. I think um, most of us expect to get less sleep as we get older. And uh, for a lot of us, it turns out that way. And then, of course, you look at like kids, like my kids or anyone else's kids. You say, man, why do they have so much energy? And, and I think the first reason why they do is because they they sleep a lot. And obviously, the other reason is they don't they don't necessarily have our level of stress yet. They don't really know uh, <laughs> what it's like to try to be an adult and and manage stress at work and stress with you know relationships and finances and all those lovely things. Um, but uh, I just read a really good book about sleep. I actually have another chapter to finish, but it's called Why We Sleep. Uh, why we sleep. Forget who the author is, but it's just fascinating how much research they've done on what happens when we sleep, why we sleep, why it's important, and um, you know stuff that I I could probably just again give you good commonsensical advice that it's good to get extra sleep. They can now tell you precisely why you need sleep, what happens, you know, during the various stages of sleep, which you'd have different sleep cycles and stuff like that. And and essentially just to kind of summarize this book really quickly, sleep and adequate sleep has a positive impact on just about every single function of your body from various organs to your immune system, um, to your emotional fitness and all of these things, pretty much anything that you would like to have optimized in your life, sleep does. Sleep does that at night, as long as you're getting the appropriate amount and, you know, giving yourself ample opportunity to, to go through the various phases of sleep. But at the same time, sleep is such a tricky one for so many people. And again, I think as a society, we almost kind of write it off, say, oh yeah, well, it's normal not to sleep very well. You're an adult, like welcome to adulthood or welcome to parenthood, you know, which, which is very true. Um, but I just don't think we should gloss over it as much as we do in terms of the importance. And at some point in life, you know, speaking as a parent of small children, um, at some point, I'd like to think that we, you know, situations improve and we're able to kind of prioritize things if we value them, which again, there's always so many things to focus on and um, 
and try to improve in life. But I think sleep potentially is the most important thing for a lot of people, uh, just in terms of everything that happens with your brain. So if you're curious, pick up the book. It's, um, it's not the easiest read. It's, uh, it's very fascinating though. It's one of those books you read like 10, 20 pages at a time. You're like, okay, that's, that's okay for now, but lots of research in terms of what happens, uh, when we sleep and the, the different functions that if we, if we miss sleep, how that, you know, negatively affects us. One of the most interesting ones, just the interesting topic in the book was the topic of daylight savings. I don't remember it specifically, but basically you look at daylight savings and in the spring, we spring forward, you know, here in the States. So essentially we lose an hour of sleep. And one of the, one of the longer term problems with sleep deprivation is car accidents. So when people are sleepy, drowsy, the level of car accidents and fatalities tends to go up. So they, they follow these statistics. And basically that next day when people spring forward, the level of traffic fatalities jumps like through the roof for that one day, because basically you've robbed an entire, you know, society of people of an hour of sleep. Now that's just one hour of sleep one day. And the level of traffic fatalities, it like doubles or triples that next day. It was something like just statistically very crazy and statistically significant. And then of course you get back into the fall and we fall back. And so potentially people have an extra hour of sleep that they can gain. Doesn't mean they get it. Many of us probably just kind of squander it or we wake up as usual, but at least we're not losing sleep. And they look at the next day after we fall back and all of a sudden traffic fatalities drop significantly from their baseline. And so this to me was just a really good example of just one simple way to look at the importance of sleep in terms of your brain function. Now, obviously with the traffic fatality, you're looking at things like drowsiness and people falling asleep, which another interesting thing in the book, because they study these things is that people that have these traffic fatalities, they're only falling asleep for like a second or two. It's kind of like they're blacking out. They don't even notice it. And this is where, you know, you're not just like falling asleep and you're snoozing at the wheel for five or 10 minutes which apparently is possible now if you drive a Tesla and the car drives itself. <laughs> That's another topic. So that was one of the really fascinating ones with sleep. And then of course they do all of these other cognitive studies and health related studies when they're um, you know, taking different groups of people and giving them adequate amount, adequate amounts of sleep and taking ones and giving them you know, only six hours a night or five hours a night or four hours a night. And the different things that they can measure and test, it's just really fascinating. And, and what you come to, I think, appreciate is that sleep can be extremely beneficial for your health, for all aspects of your health. Any, any again, regulatory function of your body, anything like that, um, your immune system, your brain function, your memory, um, your happiness, any of these things are positively affected by a good amount of sleep, which they define as eight hours a night. And conversely, just as negatively affected if you get less than eight hours a night. So go down to seven hours a night, um, which they consider to be sleep deprivation, uh, go down to six, go down to five. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And um, again, I don't want to scare you too much or overwhelm you, but I think it's just something to um, appreciate. Or, you know, um, if you ever, if people ask you, well, do you feel tired or fatigued? I mean, if that's how you feel day in and day out, sleep might be the thing that you need. Now, I will say it's not always like, oh, well, great. Thanks for telling me, Luke. All I need to do is sleep more. It's like, you know, uh, why didn't anybody tell me? It's like, so I think the average person, um, just knowing that you need to sleep more, maybe not, maybe not do you that much good. I don't know. Maybe it does you some good, but again, there's so many things that affect your sleep, stress, diet, 
relationships, personal habits. You know, we mentioned outdoor time and light exposure. So all of these things can affect your sleep. So again, it's not quite as easy as me just uh, pointing it out necessarily saying, well, hey, you know, you should sleep more. It's like, oh, well, cool. Well, I'd, I'd love to, but how do you do that? And I think it gets really tricky when you're trying to sleep more. But there are lots of uh, tips and things in the um, in that book. Again, it's called Why We Sleep. And actually, at some point, I'd love to get a sleep therapist on the, on the podcast just to kind of go over it in more detail. I think I could probably sketch it out for, you know, for uh, just kind of a rough outline of people, but I'm certainly not the expert. Um, on sleeping. I just have a very healthy relationship and um, I guess I just view it as extremely important. And speaking again as someone with autoimmune disease, um, definitely lack of sleep can very negatively affect my autoimmune systems. So that's sleep. A couple of the things I was going to mention with sleep too, uh, just if you're looking to improve your sleep routine, is again, you're, you're shooting for eight hours a night at least in terms of the research they've done, that's what most people do. That allows you to get essentially five sleep cycles in. And when I get when I say five sleep cycles, we're talking about alternating between um, like light sleep, deep sleep, and then REM sleep, which REM sleep is where you dream. REM sleep is um, it's an acronym, REM for rapid eye movement. And so basically when you go throughout the book, it's like, well, which, which stage do you really need? You know, do you need the light? Do you need the deep? Do you need the REM? It's like, well, basically there are vital functions for every single phase of sleep. You just need all of them. And then your body will figure out which ones you need at which times. And so again, eight hours of sleep for most of us, that means you need to spend about nine hours in bed because it's going to take you you know, a while to fall asleep, 20, 30 minutes, which hopefully not a whole lot of time, but sometimes, you know, takes you a while to get to bed, takes you a while to get out of bed, things like that. So just consider that if you are shooting for what they consider optimal eight hours a night, that you might actually spend more time in bed than the eight hours because the eight hours is what you're actually spent sleeping. Pretty fascinating, like I said, what happens in REM sleep versus non-REM sleep. And of course, REM sleep is very fascinating because that's when we dream. One little just kind of cool thing I learned about REM sleep is that when you are dreaming, your body is paralyzed. So um, if you ever see someone like tossing and turning in their sleep and you think it's because they're dreaming, they're not because you are physically incapable of movement when you are uh, dreaming, except for your eyeballs. Your eyeballs are flicking around. That's why they call it REM sleep again, rapid eye movement. But everything else is paralyzed. And um, I, I guess that should have kind of been a no brainer. But if you think about it, if in your dream you're running around or you're jumping off this or you know you're throwing a ball, um, you certainly don't want to act that out while you're sleeping because you could really hurt yourself <laughs> or hurt the person next to you or something like that. So that was kind of a cool little factoid about sleep. Uh, so again, if your if your spouse or your partner is rolling around tossing and turning, uh, they're not really getting that REM sleep. They could be in deep sleep, but not REM sleep, which is um, has its own important functions. And then um, some of the tips that I thought were valuable from that, from the book I read, um, I think keeping a consistent sleep schedule is important. And I think one of probably the easiest things people could do, the average person could do um, in order to improve their sleep, especially their ability to fall asleep, you know, when they get into bed is just shutting off the lights and the electronics, you know, at least an hour or two before bed. And if you're going to have some level of light at night, you know, try to get try to get rid of that blue spectrum light. So um, like nowadays, if you have an iPhone, you can you can switch it to like an amber colored light and it basically blocks the blue light. The blue light during the day, which again, you're getting exposed to a whole array of light during the day. The blue light is really what tells your brain that it's daytime. And so you have this little nucleus in your brain that is just tracking 
the light. When is it light? When is it dark? And it tracks other things too. Well, that's basically what it's doing. And that's feeding into your circadian rhythm. And so essentially when you're sitting in front of your computer, watching TV, scrolling through Facebook on your phone, or potentially even reading a book with a conventional light, the message that that little nucleus in your brain is getting is that it's still daytime, that this is a wakeful hour. Um, and basically that delays, that delays your brain from releasing melatonin, which is a sleep hormone. So that's a hormone in your body that is, should be released as the daytime fades and night, you know, takes hold. And then your melatonin levels are, are con at that point are, are building. And it's a signal to your brain. It doesn't necessarily make you fall asleep, but it signals to your brain that you're getting closer, that sleep is coming. So the way the author described it is it's kind of like the train in the distance and you can hear it getting closer as the melatonin builds and the train is sleep, you know, so sleep is coming. And potentially, if you're um, exposing yourself to different lights, uh, especially in the evening, the train is just getting delayed, 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 and then you finally turn off the lights and go lay in bed, but um, that light should have been off two hours ago. So that, to me, was one of probably the easiest tips, or um, maybe not easy, but valuable. So if you're one of those folks that turns on electronic, or heaven forbid you like to fall asleep watching TV, maybe I can't help you there, but uh, something to consider. So electronics... Um, and yeah, getting rid of the blue lights. The wife and I will use those um, salt lamps, the Himalayan salt lamps, which again, it's still artificial light on some level, but at least you're not getting that blue spectrum. You're getting basically like the amber, kind of that rose colored spectrum. So it's not quite the same effect as like an LED light. Would you look at your TV and it's LED lights? I mean, it's blue light like blaring at you. So anyhow, you don't have to like me for that one. Uh, you know, that's not the point of the podcast <laughs> to make everyone like me, but just something to consider when you think of, again, all these just kind of different ways to, to naturally improve, uh, your body's level of inflammation and pain and, and things like that. And, um, last thing I'll mention about sleep too, is in the book, the author mentions that basically what you should be doing if you really are struggling with getting to sleep or you think you have insomnia, which they kind of have a definition for insomnia, what it is and what it isn't. There are cognitive behavioral therapists that do work specifically with insomnia. And as of right now, this is kind of the nationally recognized thing you should be doing if you have sleep problems. Um, and you should be doing this before you ever talk to your doctor about a sleeping pill. Now, obviously, you know, American society, the pill is so much easier, but there's some really bad things associated with those sleeping pills. Forgetting the name of the, the common one off the top of my head here, but it'll come back to me. Um, Ambien. There you go. Ambien. Um, but basically, so there are these cognitive behavioral therapists out there who can help you with things. And, uh, and again, I think trying to improve your sleep on your own can be really difficult because there's a lot of factors that are working against you potentially just as a result of, you know, modern lifestyle. And actually I lied. I'm going to say one more thing about sleep before we wrap up the podcast for today. The other thing that was extremely fascinating to me and frightening actually was the people who are taking sleeping pills. So if this is you or someone, you know, I want a little alarm to go off in your head because it's worse than I ever could have imagined. And again, I'm not trying to be utterly scare, you know, um, scare tactic here or anything like that. But basically there is a ton of research. Uh, the author at the time he wrote the book, which was probably a couple of years ago, said there's 15 research articles now that have studied the long-term effects of using a sleeping pill. Now, Ambien, of course, is the one that comes to my mind. I know there's one or two other ones that are somewhat common on the market. I'm not that familiar with which ones they are. But basically, they said uh, these folks that are taking Ambien or the other one, in the course of a two-year period, even if you're just taking a little bit, you were like four times more likely to die 
in the next two years, four times more likely just taking it. I think it was like six to 18 pills in a year. So this is only taking a pill a month, essentially. Oh, I only take it once a month. No big deal. It's only when I'm having a really bad you know, episode or whatever. I just can't sleep and I know it's coming or it's so stressful at work. I've got to take something and, you know, I, I just can't have another sleepless night. This is only like six to 18 pills. And I should have brought the diagram in here, but so just, just know that I'm probably off on the numbers a tiny bit, but you're like four times more likely to die in the next two years. And, and then you, you look at the regular users who are taking, you know, a pill every day. So like 150 to 300 pills, something like that. And they were almost six times more likely to die in the next two years. And they said, well, well, why are they dying? And it was a whole list of things that they were dying from, um, heart disease, uh, you know, heart attacks, strokes, traffic fatalities was way up for these people because essentially they're drowsy during the day. Ambien or a sleeping pill, you're not actually getting the sleep. You're you're out, but you're not getting the stages of sleep that would restore you and restore your body. So all of those functions that we know occur in, you know, light phases of sleep, the deeper phases, and then REM sleep, they're just not occurring with these sleeping pills. So you may feel like you slept all night, but then you wake up and you're looking for your third cup of coffee before you know it because you're having to spike up your levels because you're so drowsy. So they're much more likely to die from traffic fatalities. And then the the one that was just so eye-opening for me, which you would have thought you would heard about it on mainstream media by now, is that you're somewhere between 30 and 60% more likely to, to die of cancer in those next two years. 30 to 60%, just crazy. So, you know, obviously when these drugs were approved by the FDA, no corruption there at all, by the way, but when they were approved, there were, there were no long-term studies. So, okay, so let's give them a free pass. You didn't know back then. You got six months worth of data. People love the pill. And by the way, just as an aside, now we're making let's say roughly a billion or $2 billion a year on these pills. So obviously there's no financial conflict of interest here. Um, that's heavy sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. But so, so I see how these things get started, but now we have these long-term studies. And again, according to this author, there's 15 of them that show the same thing, that you're ridiculously more likely to die of any number of causes. Again, it could be a traffic fatality, it could be a stroke or a heart attack, or it could be cancer. But yet these drugs are still on the market. So anyways, I had no idea it was that bad um, until I read the book. I think, you know, my natural opinion on most medications is that, you know, if you don't need them, try to avoid them. But this is this is downright scary to me. So sorry to end on kind of a, a negative note here, but I think um, if you are struggling with sleep, it is very important. And if you are struggling to the point where you're taking uh, sleeping medication, you really might want to just uh, think about uh, whether it's worth, you know, getting some help from someone who can actually help you. And again, the recommendation in the book was a um, cognitive behavioral therapist who specializes in insomnia. I believe there are two in Spokane. So if you need to get some names from me, um, go ahead and let me know. So anyways, that was number eight, sleep. Uh, get more of it. Get as much as you can. And if you've got too much, uh, by all means, share some with me. So there we go. So um, that's going to wrap up the podcast for today. Again, those are the eight things. Part one had the first four. Part two, uh, quick recap. We had nutrient density, uh, outdoor time, exposure to natural light, uh, exercise, and then sleep. So with any luck, you found some value in today's episode. And um, certainly feel free to pass it along to a friend or a loved one if you think they might be interested in listening and, and learning more. And this is probably the, I probably won't do another solo episode 
for a little while. I've got some guests lined up. I'm actually doing another interview tomorrow um, with a friend of mine who is a chiropractor who specializes in upper cervical care and um, headaches and a couple other uh, interesting things. So that should be a fun, interesting interview that I'm going to again record tomorrow, probably release sometime in um, late September or October. So if you're tired of hearing of just me talking, uh, she should be fun and interesting. And then I got some other folks lined up for later, kind of to end up, um, wrap up 2019. So again, uh, love to hear from me. If you have any feedback, please just reach out to me. Uh, my email is luke at gordonphysicaltherapy.com. All that stuff should be in the show notes. So you can click on those links and, um, you know, I, I do enjoy the feedback. So if you like what I said, or you say, well, hey, Luke, I think you missed the boat on this, or you completely disregarded that, be as candid as you'd like to be. Um, you know, obviously, if you if you think I'm horrible and things like that, you might keep that to yourself. That's just negative energy, in my opinion. But, you know, <laughs> feel free to be honest with me otherwise. Uh, so interesting. Uh, thanks for listening. And um, I will talk to you guys again on the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, sponsored by Gordon Physical Therapy. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Spokane community, visit www.stayhealthyspokane.com. And we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast.